Cage 3650, Physiology of Exercise, Lecture, Thursday, August 26, 2010, Introduction to Exercise Physiology. All right, let's cover a couple of class uh, uh, housekeeping items first. I've uh, heard from a couple of people you're having trouble getting into ULEARN. Is, is anybody having difficulty getting in there? And what's the issue? It's not showing up? Like when you go to U-Learn, this course is not showing up? Okay. And are you the one that emailed me earlier today? I went to add you, and you were already in the grade book. Um, so I, I, don't know, I don't know why it's doing that. Um, after class, try to log in again. And if it doesn't work, let me know. And what I'll do is delete you and re-add you and see if that works. Okay. Actually, let's do it right at the end of class. If you want to come up here, we'll, we'll, we'll do it. Is anybody else having trouble? Same thing? You what? I can't get to the podcasting at home. Can't? Let me get there and I'll ask for the sign in. And then I'll go and I'll say I've signed in and I'll go and click on like this semester. Right. It says like, you know, like whether there's one track available. Right. I click it and it prompts me to sign in again. It's just a continuation of clicking and signing in and clicking and signing in. Huh. I get it while I'm here to stay. Uh. Maybe a, a ver iTunes version, maybe. Um, I don't know. It sounds like a, something, a software issue with uh, your software at home, maybe. Okay. I know you might, might check your iTunes version, and uh, you know when you bring up iTunes, it's got a thing where it can check for updates. Just check and make sure you've got the most current version. Okay. Um, anybody else have any issues with getting? I've, I've got the correct schedule up there. Um, the thing that's not correct yet is the lab policies. We'll get that document up there, but I think the lab for Friday is up there. So go ahead and print and bring the lab for tomorrow, okay? Um, make sure you come to your appropriate lab section. Um, when you guys bring up uh, this course in, in ULEARN, do you see, is there an icon for the practice quiz? Do you see it? Okay, good. All right. On Tuesday, and for some reason there's some screwy things about um, the appropriate release. I've got it set up to be available starting right after class on Tuesday. Let me know right away if you go and try it and you can't get to it because there's another thing I may have to do to make it available to everybody specifically in this class. Okay, so just make sure on Tuesday after class when you check the practice quiz, if for some reason it's not opening for you, um, let me know right away, and I'll, I'll try to fix it. Okay? Everybody good? Um, syllabus is up there, so if you didn't get a syllabus last time, I've got some extra copies, or it's online as well. Any questions or issues at this point? No? Okay. Well, let's go ahead and get started then on today's uh, uh, topic, which is uh, kind of an introduction to this, this field of exercise physiology. We're going to talk a bit about what it is and, and uh, why it's important and, and some basic principles to make sure we're all on the same foundation before we, we uh, get going. Okay. Um, we use this term physiology, and hopefully you've had 2230, which is a, the physiology uh, uh, background course or fundamentals course. What, what does that term mean? What is physiology? The, the ology, it's the study of, right, something. So what are we studying? Pardon? Function. Okay, so function is an important element of this. 
Okay, it could be function of the human body. Any specific part of it? Is it an uh, is it anatomy? What's anatomy really? It's more the structures. So this is more the function, how things work. Okay, and what specific things are we probably paying attention to? Systems. Systems, uh, exactly. And uh, in in particular, I take a systems approach in this class and that we talk about some of the major physiological systems in the body uh, and uh, how they function. Okay, we'll talk about the bioenergetics system, the cardiovascular system, the nervous system, the muscular system, a little bit about endocrine, the pulmonary system. So we'll talk about those different systems and how they function. Uh, well, what's the role of exercise then? What's exercise physiology? What's the big deal about that? Why do we have a specific course all in its own about exercise. How to get the most out of your okay, it could be how to get the most out of it. Um, so, you know, some kind of option, optimum functioning, maybe. How exercise impacts certain systems. Okay, and the impact of exercise. Why does uh, why does exercise impact physiology? What, what is it about it? What is I mean, what does it do? Um, are there is it? Pardon? Okay. Uh, we'll, we'll get to this concept a little more uh, specifically later, but there's this term called homeostasis in that the body likes to maintain a, uh, in cells and, and systems, uh, likes to maintain a constant internal environment. And if something disrupts it, 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 then you use these physiological processes to bring whatever that disruption is back to normal. Okay? So is exercise a disruption to the body's homeostasis? Yeah. body likes to, likes to keep a constant internal environment, um, and so exercise provides some kind of challenge or stimulus that disrupts that. So really, we're going to look at this um, you know, stimulus of exercise or activity and what role that has in uh, the body's ability to respond to these challenges and stimuli and to potentially adapt to them over time. Okay. Um, so, so one of the ways we approach this is we talk about responses and we, we're specifically referring to uh, acute responses. So what do I mean by this term acute responses? We've got somebody engaged in an exercise bout right now, so how does the body respond specifically to the, the demands imposed by having to ride this bike up a, um, you know, a, a four or five thousand foot climb in the Alps? Okay, so let's look at some specific uh, acute responses. Um, we get increases in heart rate. Okay, what else happens? Okay, we get an increase in um, breathing. And you specifically mentioned rate. Uh, do we breathe deeper? Do we breathe faster? You indicate we breathe faster, which is probably true. What about size of breath? Does that get bigger? Ah. So we get a little equivocal responses here. Some yeses, some noes. You have to wait till we get to the pulmonary system. 
you get the answer to that one. Okay, what else? Okay, body temperature goes up. Okay, body temperature goes up. Then what might happen in response to body temperature going up? You might sweat. Okay. What else happens? Pardon? Okay, what about the bloodstream? Okay, blood flow. Okay, so one of the reasons our heart rate increases is to increase the rate and volume of blood flow so that we can get things like oxygen to the exercising muscles, right? Okay, blood pressure. For the same reason, I'll put it over here by heart rate so we get blood pressure goes up. Okay, so we get a lot of responses of different systems in the body uh, <clears throat> as a result of this challenge imposed by this activity so that we can successfully accomplish this activity. All right, so lots of different acute responses, things that we can observe or that we can study that happens either uh, immediately before or during the exercise bout or that may persist for some period of time after, after exercise is over. Okay, so the exercise activity stops, he gets to the finish line. Uh, does that mean his heart rate returns to resting immediately? No, it takes some period of time. Same thing with breathing, body temperature. You know, so there are some things that, some of these acute responses that persist for some period of time after the exercise is over, but usually not for a long period of time. Okay, um, where did my... Uh, Where'd my slide go? Huh. I lost a slide. Okay. Anyway, another thing we're going to talk about in this class are some of the chronic adaptations that occur as a result of these stimuli or challenges imposed by exercise. One of the cool things about biological systems is if you provide some sort of stimulus to them, uh, they'll respond. But if you provide this stimulus to them on a regular basis, they learn, they, they adapt, uh, a variety of these different systems adapt over time. Okay? So let's say uh, you do, you're, you're not used to bicycling, but you buy a bike and you start riding three or four days a week, so you get this, this stimulus. You know, each individual exercise bout is a new stimulus for you. Uh, certain systems in your body will adapt over time. Okay? What are some of those chronic adaptations that will occur as a result of a regular, for example, aerobic exercise stimulus? Okay, increased cardiovascular what? Endurance, okay. Uh, increased muscular endurance. Muscular size. Okay, increased muscular size okay what happens to resting heart rate it goes down okay decreases in resting heart rate what else might happen okay so there may be some changes to uh, uh, resting metabolic rate changes what else how do how do what, how do we know cardiovascular endurance is improved? What do we measure to to measure cardiovascular or aerobic fitness? Okay, VO2 is our physiology shorthand for oxygen consumption, 
and we measure it at its maximum, we call it VO2 max. Okay. Um, lots of different things. You know, here are examples of a few. Lots of different things adapt over time, and adaptation is very specific to the stimulus imposed. Right. So, if we had done some type of activity like um, sprinting on a bike like track sprinting on a bike where you go 300 meters at a time instead of long distance riding on a bike, uh, we would still have adaptations, right? Would they be different? Would they be the same? Would they be sort of the same but maybe different magnitude? If you did 300 meters of sprinting uh, a couple of times a week on a bike, would your cardiovascular endurance go up? It would, but probably not as much as if you did longer endurance type riding. Would your muscular endurance go up? Would your muscle size go up? Would it go up more maybe or less maybe than the endurance type exercise? More. Okay, so these chronic adaptations are very specific to the stimulus that's imposed. Um, take it to another extreme. If you did weightlifting as the stimulus, strength training, you would have greater increases in muscle strength, greater increases in muscle size than you would in the things that are in the aerobic realm. Okay, So as we go throughout this class, what we'll do with each of these systems, we'll talk about exercise, and we'll also probably be careful to define what specific type of exercise we're talking about, and we'll look at these acute responses, and then we'll also look at what happens when you do this consistently over time and what kind of adaptations uh, occur as a result. Okay, so that's essentially the field of exercise physiology. It's sort of the definition of it and, and sort of what we do. We study the uh, acute responses and the chronic adaptations. Well, you know, why, why is this important? Okay, we know this is a required course that you have to take, but why? You know, why? why is this important information? Um, you know, we have college classes in it. We have degree programs in it. You know, we have PhD programs in it. We have uh, people like me who make their living, you know, doing this. Um, you know, why, why is this stuff important? <clears throat> uh, there's a lot of different reasons. I categorize the, uh, the reasons, sort of generally group them into three, three big categories, okay? Um, one of these categories I call basic science, The other category we kind of started talking about on Tuesday a little bit, and I'll just generally refer to it as performance. Okay. And then the third category, which is becoming an increasing, uh, increasingly important one and an increasing area where I think a lot of the jobs in this field are, and it really has to do with health, the relationship of exercise and physical activity to health. So let's go and talk about each of these in turn. <coughs> what, what do I mean by basic science? You, know, you sometimes hear that term thrown around, but you know, what does that mean? You know, if, we're, if, if, if an important reason for the, having this field is, is just for the, for the idea of science, what, why is that valid, or is it valid? Main purpose. Okay, main purpose? Okay. It, I think it is one of the main purposes, but wh what do I mean by this? Okay, scholarship, meaning 
adding to the already existing body of knowledge. Okay, This is what I sort of call this field being important uh, uh, for gaining knowledge about how the body works and functions, which is, should be an important aspect of being uh, uh, a human. It's sort of the idea of knowledge for its own sake. Okay, uh, And so... Oops. Okay, so it's important just for us to be able to figure out how the body works and functions and have an understanding of these, uh, the science of the body. Okay, there can be a lot of practical applications or things that come out of it, but typically this term basic science means we're not really going into it with the idea of finding some sort of practical knowledge or practical application. We're just merely trying to understand how the body works uh, and answer these research questions that we might have like we talked about last week. So that's sort of this idea of basic science. When we go back in history a little bit and look at exercise physiology, uh, it is defined as exercise physiology relatively recently in the scope of science. Okay? There were some people, for example, if you go back into the uh, uh, almost a, a hundred years ago, that would be considered kind of landmark scientists they were interested in things like um, how the body controls blood flow through small capillaries, um, how the body goes through these mechanical events of, of producing force in muscles, and what are some of the chemical events that are associated with producing force in muscle. Um, so these scientists were interested in this, and they found that using some kind of exercise model was a very good um, experimental model for studying these things. Because if you want to look at blood flow through capillaries, what better way than to, to see the response of the body either increasing blood flow through capillaries to muscle because of the stimulus of exercise or the diversion of blood flow to other capillaries. For example, when your body temperature gets elevated and you send that blood flow to your skin to try to get rid of heat. Okay, So these guys would never have been thought of as exercise physiologists. They were scientists trying to discover how the body worked. They just happened to use exercise as the model or stimulus for their experiments. So they could really be thought of as basic scientists that contributed to our knowledge of uh, understanding how the body works. They just used exercise as a particular model. Um, now, as I mentioned last time, I think one of the reasons a lot of people get interested in this particular field is that they're interested in human uh, or athletic performance. And... Uh, Sidious Altius Fortius is the Olympic motto, which means faster, higher, and stronger. Okay, it's sort of that innate uh, human uh, desire to want to be able to improve themselves, either academically, you know, or maybe physically, in the sense that they want to be able to, if they run, and particularly competing against somebody else, they want to learn how to run faster. They want to learn how to jump higher. They want to be stronger so they can lift more weight. Okay, this, this sort of uh, innate drive to, to uh, obtain this, this uh, optimal performance. Uh, here's a perfect example. Uh, just about a, well, one of the things that's kind of cool about humans, um, my undergraduate degree is actually in zoology, so I studied a, a fair amount of uh, different animals and comparative physiology, 
And one of the things that's kind of cool about humans and how we fit into that animal kingdom is that we're not the fastest animal in the world. We're not the most endurance-oriented animal in the world. But for a single species, we have a remarkable range of capabilities. Okay, And um, uh, this would sort of illustrate uh, uh, one end of the spectrum with uh, humans. You're going to go for me. Come on, do I have it on this one? Or... Hang on. in Berlin, so the soundtrack's in German. Okay. <laughs> Funny thing is, his victory lap is probably faster than any of us could run. <laughs> Wouldn't you take advantage of it? Okay, so yes. Um, at the end of that, did he kind of decelerate? Because I know, well, like when I saw it, like when I actually watched the Olympics and saw it, mm -hmm. it looked like maybe the last yeah, um, six, yeah, seven eight steps or so. He yeah, this actually wasn't the Olympics. This was a race in Berlin that that uh, preceded, uh, or no, this was a race in Berlin a year after the Olympics. Yeah. When he won the gold medal and set a world record at the Olympics, he clearly eased up, started waving to the crowd and everything, and still broke the world record. Uh, uh, this, he took another tenth of a second, I think, off of his world record. And you could tell, I mean, he, he still pretty much ran most of the way through. Now, now if you look at deceleration, uh, which you, you may do in biomechanics, because it's actually pretty interesting in, in how sprinters run. The, they actually reach their maximum velocity usually at around 70 or 80 meters. Uh, and then most sprinters are actually slowing down for the last 10, 20, maybe even 30 meters. So, they, so they're all slowing down a little bit. The, the thing is, what happens here is everybody else is slowing down a lot faster than he is. Okay? Uh, and he's also very unique because he's very tall and has very long legs for a sprinter. Um, usually sprinters are much shorter, much more compact. And the thing that's really interesting about him is he's got those long legs, and so when he can get them moving fast enough and get, it, get that turnover, then, then you see the 9.58. Okay? So he ran 100 meters in 9.58 seconds, which is just shy of 24 miles an hour. Okay? Um, all right, so that kind of gives us an idea on the speed end. And if you're interested... 
there's actually been the world record for women has has stood for uh, uh, 22 years. Um, Flor- Florence Griffith Joyner. This was set in the Olympic trials in, in Indianapolis. So, and again, this is maybe before some of you, uh, but this was equivalent to what Usain Bolt did uh, because she took over a tenth of a second off the world record, and it, this record has not been broken in 22 years. This is right here. <laughs> very eight, very 80s running outfit, but uh, n- nonetheless, pretty impressive. Without the hair, she might have run 10-3. <laughs> Okay, that was that was 10.49 seconds, and so uh, just a little bit underneath the the speed. And this is average speed for the 100 meters. Okay, which includes the the uh, slower speed it takes to get up to that top speed, and then the slowing down a little bit. So an average speed of uh, over 100 meters of uh, over 21 miles an hour. Now let's kind of go to the other end of the spectrum and look at endurance. Um, because humans are, are pretty phenomenal in that regard as well. And one of the things that we'll talk about is, uh, as we get later in the semester, some of the physiological reasons why this might be possible. Uh, this is Hallie Gabrisolasi, who two years ago broke the marathon world record. Uh, how long is a marathon? 26.2 miles. Okay, so 26 miles, 385 yards. Okay. He ran 26 miles, 385 yards, in two hours, three minutes, and 59 seconds. Okay? That is an average running speed over that time of 12 and a half miles an hour. That means he averaged for each mile under four minutes and 45 seconds per mile for 26 consecutive miles. If I took this class out to the track... <laughs> And I made your grade based on how fast you could run a mile. There's probably a few of you in here, but probably not very many that could break five minutes in the mile. And this guy did 26 of them back to back. Okay. Um, so pretty amazing. And uh, females are uh, amazing as well. Uh, this one has stood for a while, uh, seven years. Paula Radcliffe from uh, uh, Great Britain. And the London Marathon ran 2.15.25, which is under 5 minutes and 10 seconds per mile uh, for 26 miles. So um, 
So these are kind of fun things. It's actually one of the things that really got me interested in this whole field. I've always liked sports and, and I've always liked science and it was just really interesting to me to try to look at this and figure out how the hell people are able to do this. Uh, you know, the sort of these extremes of, of, of physical performance and athletic performance uh, is always kind of a fascinating thing. And we'll talk in here as we go along about some of the things that may limit performance in certain types of uh, athletic events. And so this really is kind of what uh, this area is all about. It's the, the, the science of it, studying athletes, trying to figure out what um, things may limit their performance, what things we might be able to do to help pr uh, improve their performance, uh, um, and then applying that to a sports situation. This is actually one of our doctoral graduates, uh, Michael Green, who in addition to being, you know, getting his PhD in exercise physiology, was about a uh, 218 marathoner. So he was kind of, I was like using him as a, an example because he's a great uh, example of both the science and the, the, the sport uh, sort of being married. Um, all right, so let's, let's think about this. Let's think about sports, any kind of different sports or exercise activity. And can you think of some ways that exercise physiology or exercise science, what scientists have done have maybe impacted an athlete's uh, um, performance or ability to, to, to do better in their sport? What might be some uh, things? That high jump. Okay. What about the high jump? When they went from like that Fosbury flop. Ah, okay. So it might be, um, uh, let's see, how do we want to put this one? It might be technique, Okay. So it might be an analysis of technique that maybe completely changes or revolutionizes a sport. Um, in the really old days, you, people used to high jump by doing this, uh, this uh, kind of a barrel roll where you would run and try to jump and throw one leg over and, get, and kind of roll the body over. Okay? But in the 60s, now, some analysis of the sports and people started to get the idea that maybe if you ran and jumped and launched your body up like this and arched your back over that you could go higher, which was, which was the case. There's lots of things that are related to um, uh, equipment, which is really probably more the realm of biomechanics. Okay? Uh, take something similar to high jumping, pole vaulting as an example. You know, just simple changes in going from a bamboo pole to a fiberglass pole let people go from 15 feet to 20 feet okay? because of the enhanced uh, flexibility of the pole and the energy return. Okay? But what about, what about physiology things, things related to specifically working with individuals? Altitude. Okay. Um, so things might be related to altitude, either the idea of after studying, which we will late in the semester, but we'll talk about altitude and how this got to be an issue with sports. Um, so maybe either going to altitude to train or then if you couldn't go to altitude, maybe we can develop some kind of um, system that we can use that may be able to mimic the effects of altitude that might help aerobic performance. Okay, so that would be one. Hydration. Pardon? Hydration, yeah. Is... Um, Uh, early on in Olympic marathon running, they actually used to have rules that you could not have aid stations uh, early on in the race. 
So you could not have any kind of water stations or anything like that until late in the race. Okay? Is that what they do now? No. no. In fact, you have aid stations early on all the way through. And this is probably one of the biggest areas, both with uh, hydration and nutrition. It's probably one of the biggest areas, particularly for endurance sports, because not only now do they allow water, what else do you do when you do long endurance events? Gatorade or Powerade or some other kind of sports beverage or sports drink or gels or power bars or things that we can get carbohydrate in us to help us improve our performance. Okay, And that, that kind of information and evolution still goes on. In fact, if, if you want to see a um, kind of a funny... I was looking for stuff on, on YouTube today and uh, there's a pretty funny uh, ad that Gatorade is doing because Gatorade has now taken another step to try to match their particular sports product with certain periods of training or competition. And so Dwayne Wade is one of their um, uh, uh, spokesmodels, <laughs> um, uh, endorses their product, basically. And so they actually took him and they, uh, they put a wig on him and kind of disguised him a little bit and put him at the Gatorade display at a Dick's Sporting Goods and then put a couple of hidden cameras as people came in and he was trying to sell the you know, Gatorade, new Gatorade product to people and it was actually pretty funny. But So this kind of information still advances okay, to try to help athletes improve their performance. So these are just a, a few examples of ways, uh, and we'll talk about more as we go through the semester, of how exercise and sports science, by studying the things that we study, may have some direct uh, practical application to athletes to help them improve performance. All right, well, it's not just athletes or what we tend to think of as athletes uh, that are interested in, in human performance. The first exercise physiology lab in this country was uh, called the Harvard Fatigue Lab. You know, it was established at Harvard University in the 1920s. It was a collaboration of the Harvard Medical School and the Harvard School of Business. Why on earth would the Harvard School of Business be interested in human physical performance? They could sell the idea and make money. Okay, number one, they could sell the idea and make money from it. That might be a, uh, an idea. Think about this country in the 1920s and what was the predominant kind of job or employment in this country at that time. Was it white collar sitting in front of a computer? What was it? probably manual labor, construction, factory worker type job. So now why are they interested in human performance? Workers last longer. Yeah, they want it. I mean, if, you're, if the job or the task that you're doing is, is some kind of physical labor task, they would want to study how to help workers be more productive, and then that way companies make more business. So this is an idea or a notion that's actually uh, uh, still goes on today, and it's kind of called the industrial athlete that there are still tasks that are limited uh, by the human, a human's ability to perform. And there are lots of um, studies that are done to try to be able to see how we can help those people perform these tasks uh, more effectively so they can do, uh, their work productivity can be higher and so they can also avoid injury. This is another biomechanical example, but we had a doctoral student a couple of years ago 
uh, a few years ago. His, his idea was to study uh, lifting mechanics um, of boxes that uh, you don't know what the weight of the box is. And it had a direct application because we have some you know, uh, package shipping companies uh, like Federal Express and UPS that potentially some of their, their uh, the work function of that company may be limited by human performance, the ability to move a large number of boxes or packages in a, in a given period of time. So they were willing to sponsor or fund research to see if they could help improve the performance of these particular uh, individuals. And so that's not really athletics or sports, but it's human performance. One of the biggest... Uh, organizations, if you will, that studies human performance is the United States military. Okay? Because still in the in the days like today where you've got all these smart bombs and laser guided missiles and all this sort of stuff, uh, you know, predator drones uh, that are operated from tens of thousands of miles away, still a lot of armed conflict, you know, occurs as, uh, uh, based on individual people doing very difficult physical tasks, sometimes in very hostile uh, uh, environmental climates. And so uh, the U.S. military, uh, particularly the Navy and the Army, sponsors quite a bit of exercise physiology research to try to help soldiers uh, learn how to train them well, prevent injuries, and help them accomplish these difficult physical tasks um, uh, so they can meet their, their mission demands. Okay, so we've had two major things so far, basic science and performance, okay, athletic or human performance. Sort of the last area I want to talk about is this idea that, that um, exercise physiology is important because it may be related to health. Uh, is exercise or physical activity related to health? Okay, um, how do we know that? It is, uh, and in fact, if we look at some, uh, let, let's set the background for it a little bit first. Um, seems a little strange in an exercise physiology class to look at mortality data, um, but if you look at mortality data from 100 years ago, what you see is the predominant things that killed us were infectious diseases. Okay, viruses, bacteria, like tuberculosis, the flu or influenza, um, things like that, that we either didn't have good means of preventing us from getting it, or if we got it, we didn't have appropriate medications to try to help the individual get through it without, without dying. And so, as an example, if we look in uh, uh, 100 years ago, Mortality statistics, tuberculosis accounted for about 10% of the people who died in this country, and cardiovascular disease accounted for about 10% of the people who died in this country. Okay? Well, then if you look at uh, huge advances in medicine, uh, preventive medicine, our ability to diagnose, treat diseases, um, etc., uh, we have reduced markedly mortality due to um, infectious diseases. What that's done is significantly increased our lifespan. In fact, you know, if, if you look at, you know, this the, over a hundred year period of time, this is the increase in life expectancy. And so now if you're born in the United States, you can expect to live nearly 80 years. Okay. Um, what that has done also is allowed us to live long enough for other things to develop uh, that wind up killing us. 
And, and, and that's what we refer to as these chronic diseases. Okay? Chronic diseases are ones that develop slowly over and develop over a long period of time, eventually until they reach a point where there is some manifestation uh, that causes uh, either some disability uh, or even potentially death. So if you look now at the percentage of mortality, by far the number one killer in the United States is cardiovascular disease. Okay? It comprises approximately about 45% of all people that die in this country every year. Uh, next is cancer, and that's about 25%. So if you look just at these top two, you're looking at close, uh, about 70% of mortality is due to this cluster of cardiovascular diseases and a variety of forms of cancer. Um, other chronic diseases, and this one in, in particular, we'll talk more later in the semester, but diabetes in particular is getting to be a, a uh, much, much more significant um, chronic disease that we need to be concerned about. All right, cardiovascular disease, uh, coronary artery disease, um, hypertension, strokes, peripheral vascular disease, this whole cluster of diseases of the cardiovascular system that, that um, have a serious adverse impact on our health and, and on our longevity. Uh, if we think in particular about coronary artery disease, that's where the plaque builds up in your coronary arteries and your coronary arteries slowly start to uh, narrow over long periods of time, leading to heart attacks. Okay, What are some of the risk factors that are associated with coronary artery disease? Uh, what, what is it about uh, individuals that if they have this then they're at greater risk of developing heart disease. What are those things? Heart attack? Yeah, the, the heart attack is the manifestation of having the disease. What are the risk factors? Smoking. Smoking, okay. So, perfect. Smoking is one of our main uh, risk factors. Okay, genetics. Okay, or family history. Pardon? Pardon? Sedentary lifestyle. Okay, sedentary lifestyle. Uh, diet to a certain degree. What else? Cholesterol. And you should have had this in other classes, hopefully, but it's certain types of cholesterol being higher and certain types of cholesterol being lower, right? Uh, do, do we know what kind of cholesterol that, that, if it's too high, that it's not good for you? That's the LDL, which is the low-density lipoprotein. So low-density lipoprotein, the higher it is, the worse it is for you. And then the HDL, if it's low, that's bad. Okay, Because HDL cholesterol is the good cholesterol, and you want it high. So if it's low, then, then that's a risk factor. Okay, So what else? We've got smoking, genetics, cholesterol, sedentary lifestyle, diet, Okay, stress. What else? Obesity. Obesity. Diabetes. Diabetes. How about blood pressure? Okay. Any others? Age. Age. Good. Could that blood pressure be high and low? 
Uh, not so much low. Uh, the big issue with blood uh, with low blood, uh, we'll, we'll talk about blood pressure down the road with the cardiovascular system, is it's got to be one of those things like the air pressure in your tires. There's an optimum range. Okay, If it's too high, it's bad. If it's too low, it's bad. In this case, with blood pressure, if it's too low, you're usually unconscious. So if it's too high, and it's too high chronically, day after day after day after year after year, then that's what tends to lead to the development of cardiova cardiovascular disease, okay, or coronary artery disease. Um, what about, I haven't seen this one up here, what about gender? Are men more susceptible to uh, heart attacks than women? Uh, yes and no. Are, are men more susceptible to heart attacks at an earlier age than women? Yes. But what's the number one killer of women? Nope. Cardiovascular disease. Okay. So the risk for the manifestation of heart disease uh, tends to come out earlier in men, but in women, particularly once they have passed menopause, their risk for developing coronary artery disease accelerates and gets right up to the same as men's. Okay, so there is some protective effect, uh, seemingly related to gender, uh, but that only lasts until menopause, and then uh, the risk for women is just as high as it is for men. And the number one cause of death for women in this country is cardiovascular disease, just like it is for men. Okay, so gender, sort of. Okay. Um, and there are a few others that are in there. There are some other kind of interesting blood uh, things you can measure in the blood, um, and some other things that are kind of current things coming out that are related um, that could be used as markers. But this is a, a useful list, and it hits most of the major ones. Now, as you look at this list of risk factors, what kind of stands out to you in terms of something that is consistent among a lot of these? A lot of the things can be controlled with exercise. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, obesity, diabetes, blood pressure, cholesterol, diet, sedentary behavior, okay, smoking. Those are a lot of lifestyle issues, right? Now, you can't, you can't pick your parents, right? All right? So that one we can't do a whole lot about. Um, well, I guess unless major surgical intervention, you can't do much about that one. Um, <laughs> But again, that's only an issue up until a certain point. Uh, oh, let's take cholesterol. Let's take high cholesterol. Uh, what do you, if you got high cholesterol, high LDL cholesterol, what are you supposed to do about it? Eat Cheerios. Eat Cheerios. <laughs> okay. Yeah, if you believe the television, right? Um, eat Cheerios or uh, oatmeal, Quaker Oats, right? Okay. Uh, so diet. Does diet have an influence on your serum cholesterol, your blood cholesterol levels? Yes. Sure. Uh, and um, exercise may help. It may help independently a little bit. Exercise in particular in conjunction with diet may cause you to do what? Diet and exercise may cause you to lose weight. So will losing weight typically help most people's cholesterol? Actually, yes. Okay. So, uh, so those are some lifestyle things, right? And in fact, the other way on the lifestyle thing, for a lot of people, it's not even so much the amount of cholesterol in your diet. For most people, it's the amount of saturated fat. Okay, so if you eat a diet that's high in saturated fat, you tend to have higher cholesterol levels. So if you change that and you eat more Cheerios or whatever, you know, uh, 
uh, improve your diet and increase your exercise, your physical activity, then uh, hopefully lose weight. That can help your cholesterol. But let's say you got bad genes related to cholesterol, and you do all that stuff, lifestyle stuff, but your cholesterol is still high. What can you do about it? Okay, you go to your doctor, have your doctor do this profile, and they can put you on prescribed cholesterol-lowering medications, which is a lifestyle thing. It's a choice. It's an intervention that can be made to reduce your cholesterol. Exact same thing with blood pressure. Okay, uh, If you have diabetes, you can uh, control it as best as possible with diet and physical activity and with uh, certain medications if necessary. So lots of these risk factors are really lifestyle related. Uh, same thing actually turns out to be the case with cancer. Uh, I didn't really tend to think about cancer too much until my wife started working for the American Cancer Society. Um, but it turns out it's a very similar story with cancer. Uh, cancer is a, a, a horrible cluster of diseases, uh, if you will. Um, but the interesting thing is sort of our attitude towards cancer because we tend to think of getting cancer from using cell phones too much, right? From living near high power lines or having pesticides on our food, okay? But the top forms of cancer in terms of mortality are skin, what other types? Pardon? Lung, breast cancer, prostate, and colon, colorectal. Okay? And if you look at risk factors of some of these major forms of cancer, they are largely, uh, there are the same thing. There's genetic components, there's, there are some potential environmental components to some of these, but by and large, uh, so the major risk factors are lifestyle related. Okay? Um, lung cancer. There you go. Tobacco use. Um, uh, skin cancer. Sun. Okay? There is a very strong relationship between uh, being physically inactive and in breast and colorectal cancer. Okay? So, the point I'm trying to make with both of these is the, we tend to, as a society, focus on um, things that actually in the greater context are a fairly small contributor to our total mortality. Okay? Um, if you think of the mortality statistics for cardiovascular disease, somebody is dying of a heart attack in this country every minute of every day. Okay? Every minute of every day, somebody's dying of a heart attack all throughout the year. Okay? So we tend to focus on things like plane crashes or you know, immediate tragedies where 70% of our mortality is probably mostly related to how we, we uh, uh, live our lives. Okay, so with that as a background, uh, is there a role for physical activity, physical fitness, uh, exercise? And if so, how do we know this stuff? I'll give you um, a couple of quick studies here. Um, first, we'll talk about the Harvard Alumni Study. Uh, this study was uh, published in 1984 and was one of the first to give us a real uh, notion of the, the relationship between the amount of physical activity that people get and their, 
their uh, chances of dying prematurely. They studied a large group of uh, people, almost 17,000 people, uh, that went to Harvard between 1960 and 1950. Uh, why Harvard? Turns out the researcher was on the faculty at Harvard at the time, and as it also turns out, you know, Harvard has a very strong alumni association, so they could contact these people and get a very large rate of response. Because what they did is they sent these people a questionnaire, and if you do questionnaire type research where you send it out to them and you expect people to fill it out and send it back, you're probably lucky if you get 10% you know, response rates. You guys get surveys in the mail or you know, all the time, right? So uh, even when you call customer service, you know, would you be willing to stay on the phone and do a survey? <laughs> Two. <laughs> um, they got 75% response. So they got a very high response for their particular population. And what they did with this survey is they asked them a variety of different lifestyle questions. Some of them had to do with diseases that they may have, had had diagnosed, their smoking habits, physical activity habits, and they broke it down into things like, on a typical day, how many city blocks do you walk? How many flights of stairs do you climb? Do you play any specific sports? You know, uh, things like that. And they asked them how many minutes they did of these activities. Uh, diseases their parents had, uh, they did have records of their college physical exams uh, and whether or not they played sports or intramural sports or anything like that while they were in college. Uh, and then for people who had died during the course of this period of time, they um, uh, actually got their death certificates and looked at cause of death. And here's what they found. They took all those city blocks walked and stairs climbed and sports played and all that kind of stuff and they used some general conversion formulas and they converted it to how many calories of energy that people expend on average each week. And then they divided the group into three. Uh, kind of the couch potatoes up here, which these are the folks who got less uh, or expended less than 500 calories a week doing any kind of activity. Uh, you had the people um, in the middle that were the 500 to 2,000 uh, calories per week folks. And then we had people who were more uh, physically active down here, 2,000 plus. And if you look, the cardiovascular mortality of the sedentary group was about 40%. How did that line up with our statistics for the nation as a whole? About the same, right? 40, 45%, right about the same. If you look at the group that was more physically active, this declined almost 10%. Okay, So mortality due to cardiovascular disease declined almost 10%. And if you went to the even more active group, it went down again almost another 10%. Okay? This is what we and what the investigators um, called an inverse relationship. So an inverse relationship means as one factor goes up, the other factor goes down. As the amount of physical activity these people went up, what went down? Their mortality due to cardiovascular disease. Okay? And don't misunderstand this. That doesn't mean that people don't die. <laughs> okay? Everybody eventually does. What essentially in context this means is premature mortality. Okay? You die before what would be reasonably expected. All right, if we look at it with cancer, the most uh, um, sedentary group right here, 25.7%. How did that match up with those national statistics I showed you earlier? 
About the same, right? As you got more physically active, this dropped down to less than 20%. That kind of plateaued. Um, but a, a clear decline in mortality from cardiovascular disease uh, with increasing physical activity. Okay, So one of the first large, well-designed, well-done studies that showed a good definitive link between physical activity and uh, improvements in health. Okay, Now, um, some issues or problems with this study. This Don't, don't take me wrong. Uh, uh, this is a terrific study, a landmark study. Um, large study, almost 17,000 people. First of all, if you look at the second bullet, what's one of the limitations of this study? Yes. It's males only. Okay, at that particular time, only men went to Harvard. Okay. Um, secondly, looking at that second bullet, what's another limitation of this study? It's only the Harvard. It was men who went to Harvard. How well does that represent our population? <laughs> Uh, so you're talking about a uh, high socioeconomic uh, status group, and how about ethnic diversity from 1916 to 1950? Probably not so much. Okay, great study, told us a lot, had some limitations. Okay, um, so we fast forward a bit and we go to the Cooper Clinic, which is outside of Dallas. Uh, you guys know the term aerobics, right? Right guy named Ken Cooper it was a uh, captain in the Air Force, got really interested in uh, aerobic exercise training to help these uh, uh, Air Force servicemen be in better shape, and he's the one who coined this term aerobics. He, he's a physician. He got out of the Air Force and started a clinic in Dallas where uh, and he, this pretty smart guy because he started a clinic where people could come for a physical exam a complete battery of physical fitness tests, a, um, and uh, have a, a whole exercise and lifestyle program designed for them. This sounds routine now, but this got started in about 1970, okay? So way before his time, or before the you know, kind of uh, po popular uh, idea of this. He was also smart in the fact that he designed a, a different element to this clinic, and it was a research group um, that they called the Aerobics Research Institute. And their idea was, well, if we're going to test all these people, let's take all of their data and keep it, and then maybe we can do some useful analysis of all of this uh, 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 study of these people that we're doing. And so one of their first big studies they published was uh, 1989, and it was a result of uh, testing over 13,000 people. Now, um, so we've got 10,000 males, 3,000 females, so at least we've got some females in the group now that we can make some uh, uh, conclusions about. They're still, you know, maybe not totally upper, but still middle to upper socioeconomic status, vast majority white, so don't have a lot of ethnic diversity yet, um, but still some distinct improvements over the previous study. The Harvard alumni study was a questionnaire. So when you ask people how much they exercise, what do they do? They lie. And in which direction do they lie? Better. Up. And when you ask people what they eat, what do they do? They lie. In which direction? Less. Okay? So these self-report questionnaires have some limitations to them. Okay? So in this case, in this particular study, these people came for a fitness assessment, and as part of that assessment, they put them on a treadmill, and then they did a maximal exercise test. Okay? The treadmill doesn't lie. 
All right, so you know, you either got to keep going on the treadmill or tell them to stop, or it's the George Jetson deal, you go off the back end. Okay, so in this case, they actually had measured levels of aerobic fitness for these people. Okay, not their guesstimate of what they did, they had measured levels of physical fitness. Um, and they did this similar follow-up where they looked at diseases people had and any mortality and that sort of thing, and here's what they found. Okay, now let's focus first on the, uh, this part down here. What they did is based on the results of those treadmill tests, they divided people into five fitness groups from lowest to highest. Okay, these are the couch potatoes, these are the uh, people who are more well-trained aerobically. And so there's these groups in between. So there's five fitness categories. So they plotted their, what's called their all-cause mortality. So it's mostly cardiovascular disease and cancer. There are some other things thrown in there as well, but it's mostly cardiovascular disease and cancer. Now, is there an inverse relationship? Did the lowest have the highest and the highest have the lowest? Well, pretty much. Pretty close, right? But is it a straight line from here to here? No. no. Where do we get the biggest drop in mortality? From one to two. Okay. Yeah. These are the people that are, you know, the lowest fitness group. This is the next fitness group up, and that's where you got the biggest decline in mortality. Okay. So you don't have to be an Olympic athlete. You don't have to run, you know, sub 204 marathon to accrue benefits of physical activity or, or exercise. It essentially, this is really the study that sort of led the movement, the physical activity movement of, you know, you don't necessarily have to do tons and tons of exercise, you just got to get your butt up off the couch and do something, okay? Uh, we'll talk about these values a little bit later, but in terms of VO2 max, Just to put this in context, the average male has a VO, young adult male has a VO2 max of about 40 to 45. This fitness group represents um, about 35 for males and about 32.5 for females. So you're not talking about even having, having to have average cardiovascular fitness. You just got to have not the worst on the planet. Okay, so this is really this study really led the movement of physical activity of just getting people up off the couch and getting them getting them to do something, because if you can get people to move to that next level of fitness, they will accrue significant health benefits. Okay, and pretty much the same thing with women. It wasn't as dramatic, wasn't quite as dramatic, but still the biggest drop was in this first group to this second group right here. Okay. And there's a you know a little bit of anomaly in the data where a little there's a little but these points are probably not statistically different from each other so don't think that wow if I stay in this third group then my mortality goes up instead of down so that's probably a non-significant change okay so strong graded consistent inverse relationship between mortality and physical fitness if your physical fitness levels are higher 
your premature mortality from cardiovascular disease and cancer goes down. Okay. All right. So physical activity is this um, notion or idea that we just get up and move, do something to get our energy expenditure, our body's metabolism elevated. Okay. Um, some kind of movement or activity. Um, exercise is a subset of that, and it you know when we talk about exercise, it tends to be more targeted towards specific components of fitness, like cardiovascular fitness or muscular strength and endurance or flexibility. So when we, so exercise is a is a more targeted type of physical activity. Um, Okay, and, and particularly in other classes, the fitness in, those, some of you are in 3020, um, uh, in some other classes like the fitness assessment exercise prescription class, we'll go into this whole notion or idea of physical activity in a little more detail. All right, but I do want to switch gears at this point and talk about some of these um, uh, basic principles of physiology before we uh, move on to our first major system, which we'll do on Tuesday. We already talked about homeostasis. Okay, it's this idea that uh, a body or a cell likes to maintain a constant internal environment, even when there are changes that are going on around it. Okay, and we have these biological control systems or mechanisms that we use. That if there is some disruption or change. There may be a series of uh, interconnected uh, elements that have these uh, uh, control these processes that will bring whatever that disruption is back to normal, okay, or resting. Um, I'll give an example that's a non-biological example: uh, room temperature. So this would be a mechanical example. Um, you've got. You know, um, is an example, there's a decline in room temperature, okay? Uh, you've got a thermostat that is, uh, yeah, okay, here we go. You've got a thermostat that in it has a sensor, so it senses the temperature and it sees that the temperature is falling too low. So it'll initiate the process to crank up the heating system over here. So the decline in temperature is a positive signal. The thermostat will send a signal to the heating system. The heating system fires up and starts blowing warm air. The warm air blows into the room, so that's a positive effect. And room temperature starts coming up. As the room temperature starts coming up, that has a negative effect uh, back here on this thermostat. Okay, so there's this whole process where the there's something that's being sensed, it's disrupted, so there's a series of events that return this back to normal. Okay, I'm going to skip over blood pressure, and let me do, um, I'm going to skip over that one. Let's do blood glucose. Or maybe, do I have temperature? No, let's do blood glucose. Okay. Um, you eat carbohydrate. It's digested and absorbed from the gastrointestinal system into the bloodstream, and that means your blood glucose or your blood sugar level goes up. Okay? There are cells in the body that sense this level of blood glucose. So blood glucose is going up. 
Okay? These glucose receptors sense this increase in glucose concentration. So that's a positive signal. What those do is then send a signal to these cells in the pancreas. They're called beta cells in the pancreas. They're the ones that synthesize insulin. So this signal to these beta cells in the pancreas caused the, these cells to release insulin out into the blood. Okay? So we get um, uh, insulin release. The action of insulin on glucose receptors on different tissues in the body caused these cells to take glucose up out of the blood. Okay, so that stimulates glucose uptake. And so if we start taking glucose out of the blood, what happens to blood glucose concentration? It's going to go down. Okay, so declining blood glucose. This is a negative signal. Okay, this is referred to as negative feedback. Okay, negative feedback. So as blood glucose is falling, remember the original signal or stimulus was blood glucose going up. So now this, this effect is blood glucose is going down. So there's less glucose being sensed by the receptor, a lesser signal to the pancreas, lesser release of insulin, okay, um, until this amount of blood glucose has returned back to its normal system. What happens if this doesn't function properly and our pancreas puts out too much insulin? What might happen? Blood glucose might go too low and you become hypoglycemic. Okay? Um, what happens if this doesn't work very well and the insulin that's released doesn't have its anticipated effect in... in uh, reducing glucose in the blood. Glucose stays high, this signal stays high, so that tells the pancreas to do what? If blood glucose is still elevated, the pancreas is going to do what? It's going to pump out more insulin. And if that insulin doesn't help blood glucose go down, the feedback goes back and it tells the pancreas to do what? Pump out more insulin. And so you can become hyperinsulinemic. That's what happens with type 2 diabetes because the insulin doesn't work correctly and the body overproduces insulin. Okay? We'll come back to that idea, but this is, this is the typical kind of control mechanism that we have in the body. It's called a negative feedback mechanism because there's a stimulus, there's an effect, and the effect is to reduce the original stimulus. Okay? And so it kind of winds itself down because the original stimulus is lower, you get less of an effect. Original stimulus is lower, you get less of an effect until you get back to normal. Okay. Now the problem is with exercise, uh, exercise disrupts homeostasis, but it's difficult for these measures while you're exercising to get back to normal. All right, let's take body temperature. When you start exercising, your body temperature goes up, right? So that's, that's going to be sensed by certain sensors in the body, and it starts to um, 
It basically causes two major effects. One we've already talked about. Your body temperature goes up when you exercise. So one major effect is to do what? Sweat. Sweat. You start putting water out on the surface of your skin in hopes that that water will evaporate and take some of the heat with it and cool you. What's the second major thing your body does? Uh, for people particularly with light complexion like me, if I go out and exercise when it's hot outside and particularly humid, when I get back, what do I, what's my appearance look like? Flushed. Flushed because what's the second major thing I'm doing to try to get rid of heat? Blood flow. I send blood flow to the surface of the skin to try to radiate off some of this heat. Okay, so, there's, so we do these two things. We do more things, but those are the two major things. Does, while you're still exercising, does that cause your body temperature to come back down to, what's resting body temperature? What, what's resting body temperature? 98.6, about 37 degrees Celsius. So while you're exercising, your body has these responses. Does it make your temperature come back down to normal during the exercise? Actually, it doesn't. Okay? So a lot of times we achieve during exercise what's called a steady state. I put that in here now. Um, okay? That exercise disrupts homeostasis. You have these responses, and a lot of, in most cases, the responses limit. The, this disruption, but they don't make it return back to normal until sometime after the exercise is over. Okay? So that's one of the reasons that exercise is such a great model to study physiological responses is because the, the response is usually uh, uh, is not completely homeostatic. It doesn't return right back to normal quickly. It usually persists during the length of time that, uh, and for some period of time after the exercise is even over. Okay? So it's a great way to study these physiological mechanisms. Okay. Um, basically, at the end of each of these PowerPoints, uh, at the beginning, I usually have a, several bullet points that kind of gives you an outline of what we're going to talk about. And at the end, I kind of replicate those, but almost in a way that you might be able to use as a, a study guide. You know, so as you're studying for the first exam, if you can look at these and you know, answer these, you're probably on a... A uh, pretty good uh, track towards that quiz or exam. Question. What would like the definition of steady state be? Um, it it would be a relatively unchanging response that is higher than the resting response. So let's take heart rate. Let's say you go out and you start running. Your heart rate goes up to you know what's your resting heart rate? Ballpark. Forty. Yeah. Say your resting heart rate's forty or so if you're pretty well trained. You go out and you start exercising, your heart rate may go to 140. As long as you stay at a steady exercise intensity, your heart rate will stay at about 140. So it's at a steady state, but it's higher than resting. Does that make sense? Yep. Okay. Anything else? Other questions? Okay. Don't forget lab tomorrow. Lab tomorrow, and then we'll see you next Tuesday as well.